You've landed on The Substance, a podcast aimed at being biblical, thoughtful, and human. Join us each week as we engage the culture without the culture war. I'm your host, Philip Marinello, joined by my friends and colleagues, Trevor Aiken. Howdy. And Vincent Edwards. What's going on? How are we doing tonight, fellas? I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> be a fun you ask that every time, I'm going to say tired. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> very tired season. Last time we went like 10 minutes without mentioning how tired we were, though. I know. It's probably because you didn't uh... ask how I was feeling. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I'm just caring for you here, bud. No, no you're so kind. <laughs> and we are joined tonight by uh, author, professor, beard enthusiast, uh, Alan Noble. I don't. I just have it. I don't know if I'm enthused by it. I'm I just have. I just have the beard. You might be enthused by it. Your beard is enthused by you. Beard. Yeah, it's it's there. It does its job. So, are you guys usually tired? Is that the? Lately, we have been. <laughs> yeah. Lately, you have it's been. been a tired season. We've Last... been going through a lot of different like life changes. I'm impressed that we've been recording a new show each week. We've got a bit in the bank, but yeah. I'm impressed that we stayed on track. It's been something else. I see. So, so Trevor, are you really not tired, or are you just being optimistic? Because sometimes you, you're just like, I'm tired of saying I'm tired, so I'm going to say something optimistic. No, homie's exhausted. No, it's, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty tired. Yeah, they're working okay. that guy crazy. It's, okay. I'm, yeah, I won't go into all of it, but yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> this could be the uh, Trevor group there. Why Trevor's tired featuring Alan Noel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming to this intervention, Trevor. Uh, yeah. We're, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to make help. we're just trying to help. I'm sure you yeah. know. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot in here that, that actually is apropos. <laughs> no, that's what, yeah, that's what I was thinking as you guys were talking about that. I, I was thinking, I, I've had this thought a lot recently about, uh, you guys probably have some questions, but I'm just going to go for a second yeah, uh, about this, this idea of season. So Philip, did you say season? Like we're yeah. at a season. Yeah. Um, I keep waiting for the season to end. Facts. We're on a season of change. We've all just moved and have gone through various life okay. changes. So there's at least the the transition. We will eventually uh-huh. get used to the madness, um, like you talk nope. about in your book to a degree. <laughs> no, I <laughs> hear you I'm on saying. waiting for the season to end, though. Yeah, it doesn't end. I'm waiting for my season to end, well, and it doesn't. It doesn't. End. Less than hundred I mean, years, it'll be over. There are there are some <laughs> things, right? Like so, when I was working on my PhD, like the dissertation gets finished, so that there's some closure. Like when you move, once you moved in, the boxes are unpacked. That season is over. But but, but if the exhaustion is the sense that there is so much that's demanded of you every day, from the serious to the stupidly mundane, that season doesn't end. And no. if that's the thing that's making you tired. Bad news. It's probably just yeah. the lack of sleep, mostly. <laughs> Sometimes the season is like young kids waking you up at like super early season. It feels like, and, I, and I'm wondering if that season ends also because well, I'm five years five years into that season and wondering <laughs> about how that season plays I'll, out. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I'll be optimistic. Yeah, hopefully it'll. My my six year old woke up at three a.m. this morning, and my, my nine year old wouldn't fall asleep. He was running around at ten thirty after wow. being in bed for an hour and a, or two hours, two hours, yeah, two hours. He's like, "Dad, I have too much energy." So, yeah, it Jeez. should end. It should end in theory. Don't worry. Right. One of these days. One of these <laughs> days. 
So, Alan, you're, uh, was reading your bio on your website. I knew a number of these things about you, but you've had quite a life. It just sounds like <laughs> it. You just make stuff up for those bios. When you, uh, <laughs> when you go on podcasts or you do speaking engagements, how do you, how do you prefer to be um, uh, introduced? Like, how, how do you introduce yourself to new people? Not like, what do you do, but like, what, what do you say about yourself? Um, associate professor of English. I like to write about things. I'm, I'm not good at it. I'm not good at it. No, I don't know. Is your favorite interview question? Tell me about yourself. Yeah, right. <laughs> is that, that's your I, I, it is. I don't know. Like, what do you what do you want to hear? Like, I I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. I hate that. I hate that question. You got to give me specific. <laughs> I, I got two specific bio questions here. Okay. Yeah. I knew that you were a, a Cormac McCarthy guy, but I didn't know that mm-hmm. your thesis was on Blood Meridian. What aspect of it? So, I read that book and I loved it. It's beautiful, even though it's the most violent and brutal. Yeah, it's yeah the most violent thing I've ever read, and it's very dark. And a lot of readers come out of that, including scholars, have a very nihilistic reading. So their idea is there's no hope in this text. It's it's an utterly hopeless, one of the most hopeless texts in contemporary American literature. And so I read that and I was like, but I really like this, and I don't feel like it's hopeless. And so basically the, the, the argument is that with Cormac McCarthy, there is hope, particularly in Blood Meridian, but you have to pay very close attention because his world is dominated by violence and evil. But there are these little moments of, of hopefulness hmm. that if you're not paying attention, if you're not reading carefully, you won't understand and you won't see, hmm. but they're there. Nice. That's sort of what it was. That sounds similar to what KSP said about The Road, also by Cormac McCarthy. The Road is much more obviously. The the moments of grace in The Road are much more easier to, to spot. Yeah? Yeah. And I saw them, but yeah, it does. It, they do feel dark. Yeah, so I hear that. KSP wrote about it in her book, wrote about The Road in her book. Uh-huh. Didn't cite me. She said... <laughs> Alan, I didn't even know you wrote an article, an academic article about the road, about hope in the road until after I finished my book. Cool. I thought we were friends, Karen. I thought we were friends. I've got one academic article that I really am proud of. That's the one. This was the moment for someone else to decide it. You didn't decide it. You, you felt like Jonah with all that shade. Second edition. Second edition. <laughs> yeah, shoot, yeah. Uh, and also, before we jump in, I gotta ask: tell me about your two hip hop albums. Uh, what do you want to know? I mean, so did you have a uh, name? Uh-huh. What was it? Uh, the group we were called Sober Minded. Oh, okay, it was a group. It was a group. Yeah, me and a friend. Yeah, that was probably not a great name because everyone thought we were like a an AA, like a <laughs> yeah, like a straight edge. <laughs> It's yeah, kind of like, like the a... opposite of what people think of the substance. <laughs> right. We're like, oh, that's true. Yeah, I guess so. Huh? Yeah. yeah. People are like, so are you guys, you know, rapping about how, you know, we shouldn't drink or something? I'm like, oh, are you former alcoholics? Like, no, that's, no, it's, uh, it's figurative. It's, <laughs> it's figurative being sober, right? Uh, yeah. So I uh, loved, uh, I was in Southern California and I had a lot of friends. I had a, a little home studio in college and i had a lot of friends who were doing what was called underground hip-hop at the time and they needed a place to record and so they came and recorded 
And um, then I started producing a little for them. And then I started rapping. And then they're like, yeah, we should have that group. So I did that. That was a lot of fun. Is that easily findable? No. <laughs> it's not very good. <laughs> this one I need to I need to know who are your rap influences. Yeah. So I mean, there so there's this collective called Anticon that's in the Bay that was in the Bay Area. Um, I mean these are obscure most this sounds really pretentious, but these are obscure like underground groups. So there's a guy named Buck Sixty Five. There's a guy in Chicago named Quell and his group, uh, Galapagos 4. Yeah, Anticon, Soul, uh, and Dose 1 and Anticon. Yeah. We're going to have one listener that's going to be pumping his fist when he hears that. Maybe. Maybe. Alan, too. Like, I want to follow him. (laughs) From the Bay Area. Our our one listener from the Bay Area is going to be like, yes. And even if you're in the Bay, you probably don't know. So it was, yeah. Probably a year or two ago. It, that's right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a minute. We, we don't often have people who are literary professors and also have hip hop albums. We've had hip hop artists on the show. They're uh-huh. not usually literary professors, but I guess show dabbles in all of right. the worlds. Show literally, And the narrative got repressed on vinyl. That is such a great album. Oh my gosh. It's a top five. And he was harassing me that it wasn't my number one. When we had him on, yeah, <laughs> he would show it absolutely. He, he definitely that. immediately he didn't miss a beat. It's like, why isn't it your number one? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, kind of serious. I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alan, I'm going to jump into something here. So, we on the show have a couple different formats, and then one of our formats is called Topic Toss Up, and basically we talk about a number of different topics in those. The very first one we ever did on the show. Oh yeah. Was uh, one of the topics was participation trophies. Okay. And I was making the case to Philip. It was at the time it was just me and Philip. And I was making the case to him that participation trophies are actually good. Like they're actually an okay thing because we need to get out of this mindset of like everything's to conquer and like this meritocratic thing of this guy's a winner because a lot of times especially in sports like in um what is it outliers or one of uh, malcolm gladwell's books he talks about how in hockey the closer you're born to january the more likely you are to be in the nhl because that's the cutoff for um hockey leagues children's hockey leagues So, so they're the oldest ones in the groups and then they get more attention because they're more skilled because they're older oh. at young ages and then over time it accrues such that i think it's like 50 percent or higher of the league is born in like january or february interesting um so like things like this where we think that there's merit we think these people are superstars but a lot of it is just the accident of birth literally yeah what are your thoughts and and the things that you've written on meritocracy and and I guess, participation trophies as well. So I, it's interesting you ask about participation trophies because um, this is our spare bedroom and on the floor there's a certificate, participation certificate my son received for, for cross country. And when he got it, uh, he said to my wife, uh, I can't speak too loud because they're going to bed here. Can we get this framed? And um, my wife was like, I, honey, I don't, I don't think we're going to get this this frame and he was good like he 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 came in top three at the last race i mean he did phenomenal but 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 it was you know that was his impulse was to say this he was proud of it he was proud of it and when he was proud of it i thought 
well, here's a kid, like, it's not like he's not trying. It's not that he doesn't have drive. It's not that he's putting it, you know, he's failing to put in an effort. So when you think about participation trophies, just making everybody a winner and like, he was very aware I didn't win the race. Um, mm-hmm. but, but he was also proud of what he did. And, and I think that helped him recognize that even coming in at best third place was notable, was worthwhile. So that's, that's one for, for you, Trevor. Yeah. Participation trophies can be, can be appropriate, but on the other hand, I think you can argue that they're also reinforcing the idea that, that, that you have to be that there is this merit, right? That you have to be rewarded, that you have to be acknowledged in order to know that your your work is good, right? So, like, mm. if you don't get something, then I guess you're not actually you're not actually doing a good job. So we mm. have. So on the one hand, what we'll do is we'll say you've got to be high achieving, and well, how do I measure? How do I know, Dad? How do I know that I'm high achieving? Well, you get rewards, you get uh, acknowledgments, you get merits, you get oh, you know, trophies. Um, and then we realize, well, wait a minute, we've got a bunch of depressed kids. So how about we give everyone a trophy <laughs> because we've made meritocracy this, this high value that doesn't really solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think the, the trophies themselves are uh, either inherently good or inherently bad. I don't think they're inherently problematic. But I do feel like they're a reflection of a, of a broader system where, uh, as, as you suggested, that, that we're taught to think in terms of merit. People achieve things because of their merit. And yet uh, our personal experiences tell us that that's not really true. Um, And um, well, I guess that's the best case scenario is we recognize meritocracy isn't actually true. The worst case scenario is we think I'm just actually not good enough. Um, uh, (laughs) Meritocracy does work. If I did run harder, I could catch up to the boys who are just bigger than me. Um, But that's, that's that's not reality. Yeah. So part of what I argue in this this book I wrote is that that we live in a, a highly combative, highly contested world where we're always compete, competing against each other for everything. Mm. Man, that's deep. And I know um, just kind of going on meritocracy, I am definitely not impervious to bringing merit into my work. And I know that uh-huh. in your book, you talk a lot about you know, how work hard, play hard ethic diminishes rest and the habit of burnout. And it's super easy to fall on that because if you work hard, especially if you get accolades for it, then it's like, okay, I need to continue to drive myself to go up that corporate ladder or to yeah. get the recognition of other people or win that thing. Yeah. And so it's almost to the point where it's like burnout is the cost of what's necessary to be valuable. Right? Talk a little bit about how sure. how society has adopted that burnout culture and that that ultimately diminishing or dismissing the need for rest. Yeah, it's 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 sick. And so, not only is it the cost, um, sometimes we can get so, our priorities so perverted by this drive that actually we see uh, burnout as the as a kind of reward. Because this stuff is coming from, you know, it's it's not like I'm talking about those weirdos over there who don't have their life together. I mean, this is these are things that I feel like myself. So sometimes yeah. I'll come home and I'll feel exhausted. I'm just, I'm like, I am mentally and physically done. I'll put my kids to bed. I'll say, sorry, honey, I can't hang out. Can't even watch a TV show. I've got to prep for class. I've got a grade. I've got to answer emails or something. And I go to bed 10, uh, 11, 12, and I'm 
just beat up. And I actually feel maybe physically ill just because I just keep pushing myself. But psychologically, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, you did it. Like, that's it. That's it. That's what you're supposed to feel. Sure. Beat yourself into the ground. Keep working. Drive yourself. That hashtag grind. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? I mean, so I, I love and hate Instagram. Uh, one thing I love about it is that I can see all of these things. And so, Vincent, when you were talking about this, you know, they're, you know, climbing that corporate ladder. I, hate, I see people talking about mindset, right? You got to have this growth mindset. And there are mm-hmm. all these gurus on Instagram that mm-hmm. are that are selling you on how to keep hustling all the time, all the time. They're they're young. They tend to be attractive people, men and women, uh, who you know have these pictures of themselves of being successful, and they're selling you some program or seminar or book or whatever that says <laughs> here's how you keep yeah. hustling all the time, and then you'll make it. And but they do play hard, right? Because what they'll do is they'll have these videos of them teaching you how to hustle, and then they'll have videos of them on some beach. And, you know, and, and, you know, they're constantly traveling. They can't just, they can't just like, there's never a picture of them just sitting and reading a book, right? (laughs) There's no rest, right? Like their play has to be hard. They're partying, you know, they're doing off, you know, off-road sports or something, you know, something wild. Um, And I I think that, um, you know, so I'm reformed and, you know, sometimes when we talk about here, we're talking about merit and we could talk about works, you know, um, Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't want to spiritualize this too much, and I don't want to say that that functionally people can in the contemporary world can easily uh, have their own workspace righteousness where it's based on their hustle, right? Like if if I'm working hard, I know my I'm I'm right with the world. So I, I'm not sure it's the same thing as <clears throat> thinking I'm right with God, but there is a kind of what I call in the book a kind of existential justification. Maybe you're not thinking about God, but when you ask yourself, when you're, when you're lying in bed at night, you're asking, was my day good? What did mm-hmm. I do today? Was it okay? If you feel overwhelmed, if you feel like you've done so much that you're beat up, you might say to yourself, my works were good enough. I did it. This mm-hmm. was good. This was a good day. But it's unhealthy, right? It, 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 it's eating right. us alive. It's unsustainable. And we know it. That's the thing. It's like, there's not really any debate. Like we mm-hmm. all know, there's nobody saying like, yeah, we could just keep this up indefinitely. No, no, it's toxic. Everybody knows. And so why do we keep doing it? It's so insidious as well because there's there's like I, I the company I work for, you know, great company, but they also have this like, well, we want you to have work life balance, and I uh-huh. think they believe that, but then they also are like. But if you want to get in line for promotion, <laughs> you want to see that you work hard and really go above and beyond. And so there's a part where it's like, so you want me to work after hours. So, and, and if that's the desire or the goal that you want, and I understand that there are some jobs where it demands of you because of the nature of the work. And right. so there are some people who are like, I want rest and I, I don't want to, you know, grind out all the time. I just, the nature of my job does not allow me to be able to gain that. My, my wife's a doctor and mm, just the culture oh of that, it just, it's like, you know, the, the most we will not work you is 80 hours in one week. Like that's the cap. And it's like, that's a crazy cap. What the heck? Yeah. I don't want to be a patient on hour 75. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully she does all right. But I don't know where those reserves come from, but it's just it's it's this it's kind of confusing and it's hard to pinpoint 
um, in those areas where it's like, hey, we want you to be able to live your life, have hobbies, rest, do your thing. Uh But we also want to make sure that, you know, you do your job, go above and beyond, make sure that you perform. And so it's hard to digest that when it's like, I I don't think I can actually balance both and get the results that I think I want. That's right. And that you want. The, the right. results that you're asking for me. So I, I don't want to be too cynical, but in, in, in researching this book and looking at the ways uh, companies will talk about um, healthy working conditions and healthy work-life balance, um, sort of the conclusion I came to is that almost without exception, when companies talk about that, their, their sole mo- motive and their sole criterion for figuring out whether um, a, a specific benefit or a value is actually good for you is if it's good for the company, right? So is this actually beneficial for us? So for example, yeah. it yeah. is, and it's about efficiency. It's about profitability and efficiency. So a couple of weeks ago, I see this Harvard Business Review article uh, about this company who does this survey asking this question, what is it that employees Uh, desire most to improve their working conditions. And the number one thing that people asked for, you want to guess? Pay time off. That would be great. That would make sense. No, sunlight. They wanted natural Mm, lighting. And I thought, and then the, and I thought to myself, wait a minute, we have gotten to a point where just seeing the sun, getting sunlight, (laughs) can Mm, I just please see the sun? What are these people locked in caves? But that's, but it's actually, (laughs) Yes, they it, are. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. it is. I, right? I was joking I mean, with Trevor. Like, I didn't see the sun for three years before my current role. I got a lot of windshield time on my job. I'm driving all over the city. Like, if I had a cubicle job, like, I, I, I see yeah. why people jump out of the window. Like, I, I could not handle a window that. to jump out. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're like, hey, it's <laughs> going <laughs> That's pretty good. If you had the basement floor, I guess you kind of just. Yeah. So to me, that's one of these signs that our, 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 our systems, our ways of living are inhuman in some fundamental ways that nobody really disagrees with so that we can say something like this. Yeah. Workers want to see sunlight and nobody's shocked. Nobody's like, that's really okay. Things are a mess. People are just like, yeah, that, you know what? I also would like to see the sun. All right. So that's problematic. What was crazy to me though, is that later in the article, after this article, Hey, you know, uh, sunlight, they want sunlight. Then it's, you know, it shifts because it's Harvard business review. So they're talking to employers and they say, you know, not only do employees want more sunlight, why should employers give their employees sunlight? Oh, because they'll perform better? They'll perform That's better. It. That's you, it. That yeah. was the argument. That was mm. the heart of their argument. As they say, yeah, they want sunlight. And they'll be better producers. Out, <laughs> research has shown they will produce more. Yeah. And I thought yeah. to myself, okay, I don't need to explain to you why giving your employees natural lighting is good for them as human beings. I don't need to, that's self-evident. I don't need any surveys. I don't need any research. I could, it's right there. You know this. Why does this person need to come along and say, uh, well, here's the real reason, right? Like here's, yeah. here's the motive you need. Um, mm. and, I, and so one of the things mm. that I've, I'm, I'm discovering, I'm seeing a lot of is, uh, Vincent, you know, you're talking about this, this double speak that you'll get from employers. On the one mm. hand, yeah, we care about your work-life balance, but we also want you to give 110%. So if you're not working above and beyond, you're going to fall behind. And then why are you even here if you're not really hustling, right? <laughs> um, and, yeah. and so, but I think part of that, we want you to have good life, work-life balance. I think what that really means is, we want you to, to, to be sustained. Like we, we don't want you Reduce to get burnt absenteeism. out. absenteeism. Exactly. Because yeah. yeah. you're producing shown, less. That's right. Exactly. If we burn you out, then you can't produce at all. Right. 
and it'll cost us more because then we got to replace you or we have to deal with leaves or we have to for sure you know deal with lost productivity so like yeah so we don't really care if, actually if you have a good work-life balance we don't actually care about that what we care about is you're not so depressed and so anxious and worried and beat up that you can't perform well well Dang. and this was something that was interesting so so um, when I worked in retail, there was a time when we had a director come in and, and everybody was talking about like, you know, we feel like for the kind of work we do for the company that we work for and the kind of resources that the company we work for, we know has like, basically, why aren't we paid more? And what, you know, what can be done about having a living wage, like something we can live on? And what we were told is like, well, this company, we don't use a cost of living model we use a cost of labor model to determine our payroll. <laughs> Sweet. And they just said that out loud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is why it's, this is literally how it was explained in the moment. <laughs> we don't care about cost of living. We That's care good. About how, how, <laughs> no, yeah. Oh, so literally, no. and, 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 I, and it makes sense. It, it, your labor is also just as much as apples or TVs or anything else is a market commodity labor and people to labor right. it's a market commodity and you are bought and sold on your wage based on the going rate that the company can get and the problem that i see with that of course is that it's the power is asymmetrical there big time you yeah. know an employer mm -hmm. can shop around for employees all day yeah. but as an employee you can't just shop around for employers and pick whatever you want one day and then pick a different one the next day you'll beyond your ear especially with the yeah the cost of living continually getting wild yeah yeah so so then that's going to that asymmetrical power is going to drive down cost of labor you know mm -hmm. so yeah but so but then fundamentally you're, you're looking at somebody like a widget yes and i've been having this thought recently a lot too is money just a quantitative measure of the society's value of you it literally is quantified entitlements right uh it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be, but it often practically is. And so there you had an instance where the employer was just very open about it. Yeah, look, we know what your worth is. And so you can complain all you want about the wages, but the reality is we have 10 other people who are willing to come in and do this work. So you're not anything special. We fundamentally don't have to pay you more. You're replaceable. So here's what I would say, that, that wages often do function as a signal of worth, but they don't, they don't have to. They don't have to. And in fact, they, we know, right, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that they don't actually judge us on our worth, right? Sure. So whatever you get paid, that's not a true account of your worth. But, but there is a sense in which uh, socially it feels that way. Because it yeah. is connected to what you're entitled to. Like if I, if I make right. enough money to buy X, then I'm entitled to have X. But if I don't, then I'm not because they're not just going to give it to me. Right. And, <laughs> and where one of the ways this gets really muddled is the, 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 the intersection of dignity and work. So mm -hmm. a lot of jobs have just sort of abandoned the sense of dignity. So there's no, uh, there's a little sense that there's anything dignified in, in being a retailer. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So you see yourself and the company wants you to, to see yourself merely as a tool. You're an agent. You're an avatar of the company. Your job is to just sell these products. There's nothing mm -hmm. inherently good about what you're doing. You're just this is this is your task. And if that's the case, then the one thing you get out of it is money. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. That part of the book was really depressing. You talk about like just all the crap that we make so that people have <laughs> enough money to eat, but then we're just filling the planet with crap. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm, worried, I'm a little worried about this book that people start it and they're like, cause people are like, Oh, this is so, this is so great. I read the intro and I'm like, Okay, it's a, keep, keep going. Keep, keep, keep going. Page two or three. Like it's, it's and then they get it's quiet. McCarthy. You gotta find the hope in there. That's right. Yeah. And I keep I keep saying, like, please continue reading. Like it ends hopeful, I think. Don't give up. Don't give up hope. <laughs> yes. Uh monetary value. Yeah. And so it doesn't have to be that way, but practically it, it often is that way. Um, and dignity is a lost aspect of work that we should be advocating for. And, and that that begins on both ends, right? So the employer, actually not both, all three ends. So the customer, the employer, and the laborer all have to be thinking about work in terms of dignity. And by that, I mean, yes. I'm doing something for the good of my community. What I'm doing is meaningful labor, right? Now, if we stop talking that way, if we stop thinking that way, we are just going to be reduced down to our monetary value. And then, but if, but if I go, you know, if I go to the grocery store and I see my neighbor working at the grocery store and I know like, that's good. Like I, I, I want, I need to be able to buy these groceries and I'm glad that this person is there and they can greet me and we can have a conversation. Then there's something meaningful about that interaction. And even if they're not paid as much as they should Mm -hmm. uh, be, it's validated. But I I think Mm -hmm. that's where it gets hard is because too, like if I really care, like if my, if my friend, like, let's say if, if Phil was working at the grocery store as like his nine to five, that's a dignified job. But my man has two kids. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be yeah. advocating for him to get out of that, you know, and I'm going to be trying to find ways for him to get out of that because the reality is, is it's not going to lead to like dignity in his ability. Obviously he has dignity in the fact that he isn't made in the image of God, but yeah. like society is not going to treat him as a dignified <laughs> yeah. person in giving him housing and food and everything that he needs yeah. at that job. Yeah. The real estate market and healthcare aren't, aren't very concerned with how, how dignified your labor is in your community. Yeah. And it, it really, it it makes it even more tough because there's a dynamic to that because we talked earlier about how like some people have, have jobs where the nature of the work is to work really hard, but then kind of to that point, Trev, it, they also have like certain situations where no matter how dignified, if they're going to survive, they have to work hard. They have to pull that extra shift. They have to do the overtime. Yeah. Otherwise, they're going to have to skip several meals in order to keep the lights on or or whatever that circumstance is. So sure. it, it really makes it a very difficult reality to live in, um, yeah. depending on your circumstance, because rest doesn't seem so much given by God more than it is depending on your situation um, a luxury you sometimes can't afford. Yeah. I'll embarrass myself a little bit. Um, <laughs> I, uh, in college, I did um, a, a, an MLM. For those who don't know what that is, it's mm. a multi-level marketing. Yes. Um, some people call it scheme. It is. Not all of them. Um, yeah. and, and I was in one. And it, what's interesting about those is a lot of what we're talking about in the in the work world 
they kind of flip it on its head and say, hey, you know, there is value in the thing that we are offering. And so uh-huh. there, you bring another person on. Oftentimes, the main crux of it is financial freedom. So you, you can it just put it on autopilot. And then yeah. you can go and live your life and live your life in That's a wealthy way. It. Yeah. And yeah. then in this particular one, it it was um it had a Christian motivation. So yeah. then it's like come together <laughs> with people who are believers who want to be successful. Yeah. Sure. And uh yeah. it's just like, and so I think that was and I, you know, the scales fell off my eyes uh, after a while, not too long, not not too many investments. Um, but it's it's <laughs> it's it's one of those things where it's again, it's the insidious nature of value or how value is being acquired because then it's saying hey have your freedom spend your time don't have to worry about things they even showed a video one time at a conference of like look at this lady and she's (laughs) quitting her job and she's never gonna have to work again and it's like and you become so envious of that yeah to the point where it's like i want to be financially free so i can be on a beach every day right and so it's it's just that it's 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 a different way of pursuing kind of the same end goal because you are yeah. still going to have to work very, very hard, grind, 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 get the yeah. bag until you get to that point. Hmm. Yeah, and, and that, that idea, I saw a, a, a recent Facebook ad for m- what must be, I mean, they, they hide it, right? So like you don't get to see, but it's this video got of this guy sitting on a boat on a lake talking about how, <laughs> uh, you know, classic. And he's like, hey, you know, uh, I found out this system. I've discovered the system for making money where you don't have to do anything. So... So you can be a minister full time. So like you don't have to work. You could be, you know, be missionary or go across. So it was that spiritual thing. It was like, hey, don't you want to serve God all the time? What you need to be is rich. And if you're rich, (laughs) then instead of being on the beach. But what was crazy to me was like, but bro, you're on a boat in the lake fishing. So (laughs) <laughs> like ministering real hard out there. <laughs> exactly. I was like, what are you really selling me? You're it's really like selling Jesus. me a lifestyle. It's yeah. been like Jesus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm crossing the river in the boat. I'm about to, That's I'm right. about to the storm. <laughs> I'm fishing for men. I'm just fishing for men. Nice. This is a big sermon illustration. That's all. Hey, yeah. reason I'm out Peter here. was a fisher. That's true. <laughs> All right. All right. You win. Never mind. I was wrong. <laughs> All right. We went, we went hard on uh, work and dignity here. There were a couple other things in the book that I wanted to ask about. So the book is called You Are Not Your Own. It, it's pretty clear if you have an understanding of Scripture, kind of what you're going for. But it, it kind of vaguely occurred to me um, with just all the scandals, so many scandals happening in the church. But you, I, I was really encouraged to see you address it directly. No easy answers. Like you talk about a lot of issues, and you're like, "Well, here's the problems," and then yeah, you just gotta, you just gotta do your best and honor the Lord. But uh, talk about in conversations with people in person and online, the pushback to the "you are not your," like you are someone else's. That's a biblical truth. If we're to believe the Bible, if the Bible's our authority, that's what it says. It's true. But the pushback of well, if I'm not my own, then therefore I am open to abuse, manipulation, like evil men, evil systems. So yeah, well, I know God says it, but like, man, I'm really having, I don't want to open myself up. I I don't want to be too not my own because then I'm open to uh, manipulation and abuse. 
One of the interesting things when this book got announced, the title got announced, um, I have a friend who's very, uh, an online friend who's very progressive, and so he, he shared something, and it was encouraging, and he, he basically said, uh, if I could see one person writing a book with this title and, and doing it well, it would be Alan. I was like, that's really touching. Thank you. Um, and then all his friends just dunked on him. They were just not dunked on him. They trashed him. They were like, dude, this idea is toxic. It hmm. is evil. It's hmm. wicked. Like It's like uh, an abuser's like, uh, trump yes. card on everything. And they said, you know, right, nobody had read the book. The book wasn't even done. I was still editing it. But they were like, no, this is, you can't, you shouldn't even be saying this. Uh, and it was, it mm. was really uh, painful to watch. Um, uh. Uh, and, and, but I understood. And I, I, and I didn't want to, I didn't respond. But I, you know, I don't want to dismiss that response because I understand where it's coming from. And it's, it's coming from the, the reality of abuse in the church uh, we've seen, as you mentioned, lots of scandals recently, but there's, I mean, this is a historical thing, right? Throughout the church's sure. history, there have been people in power abusing in gross, obscene ways. So if you study church history, you study the church, it's like, it's, it's ugly. It's really mm-hmm. ugly. So that's reality. And it is, the, it is also the reality that the idea that you don't fully belong to yourself is an idea that abusers can and will continue to use to get control over people, to abuse them. Right? Do you need to trust me? You know, you really belong to God. You know, you uh, you also belong to me. Uh, you don't have your own agency. You need to stop putting yourself first. And and so uh, you know, people can. What's the what's the word they uh, that we use to uh, um, groom? Uh, groom. There it is. There it is. I was thinking brush. For real. I'm like I'm, I'm just visualizing somebody brushing a dog. And I'm like, what is it? What's the word? Groom. Thank you. Yes, they can. I mean, that's that's a way of, of grooming. So, uh, so I understand that reaction, and I think it's legitimate. And so, there are a couple of things I would say: is that one, if you believe that you belong, that you fundamentally belong to another human, right? You don't belong to yourself. I fundamentally belong to uh, my spouse, right? In some totalistic way, um, you're gonna get in trouble. There, there's going because what happens is that your spouse, no matter how wonderful they are, there's going to come a moment where they put their own good above your good. So they might, you know, they might have vowed to put your good first. They might have promised to do that. But the reality is they're fallen. And there's going to come a moment where they say, I could put the cap on the toothpaste, but I don't care. And so I'm just not going to do it. Uh, And that's a very minor thing. But it could be something more abusive where they say, I know that you're tired, but this is my desire. So I don't, I don't, I don't care. That's what humans are going to do at mm. one point or another. As a parent, like there are times when you want to put your kids good first, but they come to you and they're like, hey, dad, can you get off the couch and play soccer with me? And you're like, I'm exhausted because I've been hustling, not to go back to work, but I've been doing all this stuff for you, for your good. But that's not true with God. And I think this is the key here. When we talk about not belonging to yourself, but belonging to God, which is the, this, the argument of this book is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul and life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, which is the first answer in the Heidelberg Catechism. God is the only being for whom it's possible for him, not only possible, but it is true, that he can desire our good and his own good without conflict. Everyone else is going to break down, and at some point they're going to say, I'm sorry, um, I know this is good for you, but I don't care. I'm going to put my own good first. But that doesn't, that's not true with God. And so when we, when we accept that we belong to God, that is a different 
It's a fundamentally different dynamic. The thing that we're afraid of with abuse is not going to be true. Now, however, I do go on and argue in the book that in an analogous, not the same ways we belong to God, but in an analogous way, we also belong to our spouse, to our church, to the neighbors, uh, to community, to nature, uh, to creation. And that's a reality too. And what I, what I would encourage people to think about is because we belong to God, uh, that means that we don't even have the ability or the right to allow someone else to treat us in subhuman ways. Right? Like Inalienable we have, rights. Yeah, and and mm. and I and I, I'm not I'm not trying to blame the victim here and say, well, you should have stand up, stood up for your rights. But I, but I am saying that that if anyone comes along and says to you, um, you need to accept being treated in this inhumane way, um, well, actually, I don't um, because I belong to someone else who grounds my being in the universe. So this is just fundamentally not true. I don't right. have to put up with this abuse. I don't have to yep. put up with this manipulation. So that's, as you said, it, you know, yeah. it's not, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything, but I think it helps. Mm-hmm. As soon as you start talking about ownership and uh, God owning us, right? It makes me think about the Exodus, right? Cause that's the entire story there is that an abusive ownership is superseded by divine ownership mm. who comes in and says, Hey, I own you. And by the way, now I'm going to own this land and you're mine. And so here's what I've commissioned you to do. Like, here's, mm. here's the life and it will be good for you. It will be not a garden of vegetables where you have all of this, but it's a land flowing with milk and honey and it's, and it's my land and you're my people. And so, you know, it, I give it to you, you and it's yours perpetually. Like that's, that's yeah. how this works now and uh, how that becomes a blessing for them. Because like the, the fact of divine ownership is intended as a secured blessing. Very much so. And that ownership came right away with limits, with restrictions, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. like, it, here's the Ten Commandments, right? So here's what mm-hmm. it means. Covenant. It, yeah. it, it's not just, you know, uh, you are my people in some vague way, but you can, y'all can do whatever you want. It's like, oh, you're, you're my people yeah. and you're going to have to live like this. And that's why... Uh, you know, we were talking about, I think, Philip, you introduced this question, you were saying the pushback you could get, because even the title of the book, I, I do wonder how some people are going to feel about it, because it's, it is so counter to what feels natural to us. What feels natural is that I am my own, and I can protect myself because I belong to myself, and I know what's best for myself. And uh, what Christianity says, as, as in the Exodus, actually, you're going to belong to someone and really who you belong to is God. And that means very specific things. So in line with that, both points of that led me to another question that I thought you handled really well in your book with, um, you see, and it's always been this way, but with social media now, we just see it more and the people who feel certain kind of ways find their little tribes easier. Um, they, they just think that there's more of them. So you have somebody who identifies as a Christian. They go, I'm God's. God calls me to certain types of dignity and actions and restrictions and all these things. So we have that. And then we also have like, the world is inhumane. So let's, let's retreat. Let's, mm. let's leave the world. Let's have our own, or let's fight. Let's like yeah. get in our little political huddles and like outlaw <laughs> all the things yeah. that like we don't like. So, and I liked how. Just in like one, it was the summation. I always skip to the end. That's kind of my thing. We we joke on the show about that. (laughs) 
you said like neither revolution nor retreat is the true mm-hmm. response. And you see those all the time. Like, yeah. And that's why one of our, one of the things um, that we say on the show, like a part of our whole format is engaging the culture without the culture war. Like the culture war is so like draining and I, I see why we see why it appeals to people. Um, that there's a lot of things that you can that the people engage in those. I'm, I'm sure they're very convinced that they're they're being faithful to their mm-hmm. commission and all these things. But that's talk about how that is maybe maybe why that's not the best approach. Yeah, and so we've mentioned a couple of times that especially when you read that first half of the book, it can be a little bit overwhelming because what I'm talking about. If, if what I'm saying is true, then we're talking about serious cultural disorder that's deeply embedded almost everywhere. And so what that means is, what can we even do? What would it take to even change this? It would take How many radical. generations? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's societal so upheaval. <laughs> I, I think Christians uh, do not have the privilege of hopelessness. We don't get to do this. We don't get to say uh, our, our world is unjust, but there's nothing we can do about it or be, because it's, it's too big and I'm too small. We don't have the option to do that. We have a responsibility to love our neighbor by acting in whatever sphere of influence we have. So if we're an employee, how do we treat our customers in a human way? If we're an employer, how do we treat our employees and our customers in a human way? You know, all the, you know, if I'm a neighbor, if I'm a pastor, whatever it might be. So we don't get to opt out. Uh, on the other hand, you know, as you said, if the alternative is revolution, very quickly what can happen, uh, it, that goes off the rails fast uh, for a number mm-hmm. of reasons. One, I think, is it, it's prideful. The problem is so big, you're not going to solve it. It, it, to, to save the city, it really needs Christ's redemption. Christ is the one who's going to redeem the world. It's not going to be you, and it's not going to be me. Mm-hmm. And when you think that you can save the city, you can save America, whatever it is, what's going to happen is uh, you're going to feel comfortable running over people. You're going to feel comfortable lying. You're going to feel comfortable deceiving mm-hmm. because you're going to say, I know these things aren't good, but I'll tell you what, this order is so much worse. It's, it's worth it. It's worth it. And I, I yeah. have seen that happen and it's ugly. For the greater good. For and greater just good. for the greater, greater good, good, you know, if, if that means we have to be dishonest in our presentation of things, that means we have to, um, just misrepresent. What'd you call it? Pragmatic evil. <laughs> yeah. I it's just, I was like, Oh, shots fired right just there. And, and it's, and, and it's just like you said, it's, that should that definitely should not be the option of the Christian because you you will have to violate other areas of scripture. You have to violate scripture, uh, and you would have to, in a sense, silence your conscience in order to get to that. Yeah. And functionally just like murder your own witness. The people you see who do that don't have a witness. Yeah. They say they're doing this for the culture, but then it's like and follow me as I follow Christ after I do all these things to like push my position forward. But if you see, if you think that society and I, and I, and I don't necessarily disagree. If you think that, that are, we're decaying more and more and that, that people who are promoting that decay have no objections to deceiving, to using all these tools. They got a toolbox that Christians, as we would agree, don't have. Then what those Christians can say, what they get to a point of saying is like, well, okay, if we don't use these tools, 
we're done and our kids are mm-hmm. going to be done and all these terrible things are going to happen. And I get that. I get it. That's like, the culture I, I war. It's, it's scary. <laughs> it's scary. And I guess I would just want to say that our hope has to be in Christ. Yeah. And maybe, maybe I cannot tell you how this country is going to turn around or how it's going to get better. What I know is what God has called me to do, which is to be faithful where I am and to know and trust that he will care for my children. He will care for my family. He will care for me. That might not be pretty. It might be, it might be ugly. It might be hard. It might be a lot of suffering, which is one of the things that we're promised, a lot of persecution. But that doesn't give us a shortcut. That doesn't mean we can just be like, well, I guess honesty isn't that important. Uh, no. We got to suck it up. Yeah. I want to um, ask you a question from a listener, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of give a, a condensed version, but it's basically hitting this idea of the way that we do self-expression hmm. and the way that we, uh, f- that we feel empowered or, you know, others around us. She references how um, in a different book she read how this idolization of options and choices because the narrative behind that is that if you have choices and it's and it's you the one that chooses then you will feel empowered and and so that will that will embolden you to be able to say i did this and i have that responsibility because i'm the one that chose it um so so talk a little bit about how that idea might or might not be helpful when it comes to making choices, self-expression. And specifically, she said, in relation to parenting, mentoring right. your children with, you are free when you have a choice. Like, Because yeah. that's the temptation to kind of yeah. disciple our kids that way. Hey, kid, you decide for yourself. Yes. Man. Parenting is impossible. I don't think it's ever been done. <laughs> I don't think parenting has ever been done. It's a great idea. Somebody should try it sometime. Um, I don't, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, we can't, it's so hard to get away from choice, but we know if you've parented for any amount of time, you know that kids actually like limits. That they mm-hmm. might say they want freedom, but uh, actually, when you give your kids absolute freedom, um, for, you know, in the summer, for example, they very quickly, the first day, they're going to come to you, I'm bored. I'm bored. I have nothing mm. to do. And actually, mm. if you tell them, okay, you're going to play this outside for three hours, then you're going to do this, and then you're going to have screen time, and then you're going to do this, all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. And now they're not bored. So there's a part of us that acknowledges that limits are that they're good. And limits mean cutting off choices. So instead of choosing how you're going to spend every day this summer, I'm going to give you some, some guidance. And um, I think that can be, that can be helpful it is hard, though, because the message we're receiving everywhere is that choice is sovereign, that you are the agent of choice. You get to decide mm. what meal you want, you know, what cereal you're going to eat, how you're going to dress, how you're going to project yourself into the world, uh, virtually everything. And the, the choices, we expect the choices to be expanding, right? Like we want more options. So, for example, in social media, we expect more ways to project ourselves, uh, whether, you know, it's short videos or long videos or images or images that, that change or emojis that are shaped just like us that are fine tuned to us. You know, there's, I need another way. I need another way, Facebook. You've got to give me something new (laughs) because I need another way. The old one has been used up. It's hard to get away from the pull of, of that choice. But on the other hand, as I said, there's, uh, I think most people intuitively understand that it's not pleasant. And it is also the case that 
I, I discuss this in the book that 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 choice often the more choices we have, the less satisfied we are. Uh, this mm-hmm. is just it's just a, oh, yeah. a phenomenon. The, the more if it's you paralyzing, get, like the infinite yeah. choice, like is yeah. paralyzing the illusion of choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, you can also often experience something called choice paralysis. I have, I, have mm-hmm. a, I often talk to college seniors about this. I just did a couple days ago. I think it was yesterday actually. I had a senior come in and they have lots of career options that they could do all, all over the country. Exciting things they could do: profit, nonprofit, missionary, all these things. And they're like, I'm. I don't know. And I'm terrified that I'm going to pick the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Being afraid of picking the wrong thing. Like that was not really every culture has its own issues, but I mean, that wasn't a thing always. It's like, what town do you live in? (laughs) What what do your parents do? What (laughs) skills and tools do you have? Right. That's what you're going to do. Yeah. And I don't, and I avoid making the historical argument that says, you know, we were better off when we all just had to be farmers. Yeah. Right. So, Mm -hmm. cause I, I, I would be a terrible farmer. That's just a reality. That was, my people were farmers, but I would be a bad farmer. So it's good that I get to do what I'm better at. But I just want us to be realistic about what this means, because it also means that now we have choice paralysis when we didn't before. We had other problems, but we didn't have this existential crisis of what if I pick the wrong career and my life is meaningless? I can't make something interesting or valid out of it. So one thing it means is we're raising our kids is helping them um, acknowledge that choice matters much less than they're told. So like this student needed to hear, you're going to be fine. You're going to get a job and you're going to get a job that honors God and you're going to work to serve your community there. You'll pay your bills and that's good. Like it doesn't need, and if it doesn't work out, you'll find another job. It's not a life or death thing. This is not going to determine the rest of your life. And so turning down the, the, the significance of those choices, I think, could be one thing that we can do to help help them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to ask one more question about because um, you, you, you get somebody who hears that phrase, you are not your own. Mm. And I'm thinking devil's advocate. I'm putting on my devil, devil's advocate <laughs> boots here. Oops. So that person then says, you know what? OK, I'm not my own. So those Christians are taking away their personal responsibility for their actions because then they can just say, oh. well, I'm not my own. I'm God's. Yeah. And so whatever with the thing that I did, or whatever uh-huh. with the thing that I said. Uh-huh. Um, and so how do you how, how would you address that for a person who might push back and say, if a person embraces that they are not their own, then ultimately the, the choices that they do make. Yeah, they are giving away any responsibility or mm. accountability for their actions. I like that. I haven't thought about that. So I, I would say that um, the the bigger danger. Okay, so here's what I here's how I answered that. I would say, um, well, actually, because you are not your own, you don't get to be the arbiter of that question. Did I act morally? Did I speak correctly? Was I loving when I did this action? It's not just between you and God. It doesn't get to be that way. God has set up his church. He's put us in communities. He's put us in families. We actually have an obligation to depend on others to help us see our hearts because we won't see them always accurately ourselves. Yes. So so I think this actually, this framework gives you a lot of uh, ability to, to check Christians who want to just say, well, you know what? This is what God has called me to do. I'm just doing my thing. 
And then you can say, well, look, you're not your own. And part of what God has given you is the church. You belong to the church. So the church can ask you questions about, are you, are you really loving your neighbor by doing this? I mean, you say you're evangelizing, but you're just yelling at people. Is that really, is that really loving? Mm. Well, as, as a role of the church is to help you check that question. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, maybe the, the, the bigger challenge uh, can be when we allow uh, a specific church or a group of people to help us see those things, uh, and then they actually end up taking advantage of us, right? And mm. um, there's, not, there's no easy answers around this, right? If you sure. depend on others to help you uh, see when you're acting rightly, when you're honoring God, when you're loving your neighbor, your spouse, your children, whatever, um, there's always the possibility that there are going to be you know, manipulative people, and they're going to lead you astray. Um, and so I have no short answers for that. I mean, I, I, I mean, because I've had someone say to me about this book, well, the answer to that is just depend on yourself. You can't depend on your church to, to you know, to convict you about things because they, they might abuse that power. And I'm like, mm. I, don't, I don't think we get that option. We're going to have to trust yeah. them and trust that God will care for us. Mm. No, that's yeah. good. No, it, it's interesting to hear and, and think through some of these reactions, um, whether it's it's that one, whether it's we were talking earlier about your the progressive friend who's like, that's toxic. So what are what are some of the other like uh, responses that you've heard? Anything that's been like surprising or intriguing or interesting to you as an author, as people have encountered your book, reacted to it, interacted with it, critiqued it, anything like that? Like, things things that came out of that discussions that came out of that you found very interesting so there's a kind of cluster of responses that have to do with exceptions right so i wrote a book where i make a lot of generalizations mm. and um if you want to talk about society or culture you're going to do that and it kind of sucks because somebody can always be like well actually <laughs> i'm not like this and you and you just got to say yeah that that's okay. going to happen yeah okay. that's true mm -hmm. that's true um but um, so some people have responded and said, uh, well, I think there are significant groups of people in America where this, these kinds of pressures or these kinds of realities, they're just not salient. They're just not as relevant as sort of like an upper middle class or middle class people. Um, so hmm. for example, I, I met, uh, I was giving a talk on the, uh, on the book in a PCA church in, on the East coast. And, uh, a woman who came from, I believe, Central America, she's, uh, immigrated, she's married to an American. And she came up to me afterwards and she said, man, I, I agree with everything you've said. In fact, I, this is just how I was taught. Like you, you have responsibilities and obligations to your family and to your neighbors, to your community. Life is not about you. You belong to God. You belong to other people. My problem is that no one else thinks that way, and they all think I'm weird, and they're really guilting me for not thinking that I belong to myself. And so she's saying, mm. you know, in my workplace, uh, I have coworkers who are saying to me, why do you want to go home and make dinner for your husband? First of all, you should be making dinner for him. Second of all, just, buy, just eat out. Eat out. It's much more efficient. Um, they, she said, you know, she's getting, she got pressure at work for not being... Uh, career oriented for not being focused on on moving up the idea that maybe you could just work a job and be faithful in that job and just serve at that level maybe you don't go mm -hmm. anywhere but you do this well that was foreign and they were just like you need to you need to have this drive and she's like i you know i i like doing this but i also have these other things that are priorities and her her concern was i don't i i have the opposite problem 
So I think that's remarkable. And I think that there are mm. minority communities. I think there are immigrant communities, especially first-generation immigrants, who are gonna, who could read this book and be like, well, actually, my community, especially minority communities where there, because of persecution and, and discrimination, there's been a need mm-hmm. for support in that community. Whereas if you're... Like to survive, they need to be like interdependent. Right. Yeah. Mm. Whereas, you know, if you're from a... a privileged people group like you might you you have the luxury of which is actually a toxic luxury of individualism yeah. right and it's not mm. good for you but you get mm. a, you can get away with that so i've so i've heard that uh and i think that's not a criticism but i think it's an important point that's that's worth acknowledging that's worth acknowledging that it, it, it not everybody experiences this the same way and uh the, but those differences tell us something those yeah. differences tell mm. us something. Yeah. Well, Alan, there are several other notes I had from the book, and we're not going to keep you here all night or, or hide an extra long conversation behind a paywall or anything here. So maybe have you back here in the future sometime. But before we let you go, um, we like to do a segment called Substance Shoutouts. So it can either be substantive or enjoyable. We don't need to be too utilitarian here yeah. with uh, the edification. But what have you been reading, watching, listening to? What have you been engaging with that has brought uh, value or enjoyment to your life? So during the semester, I don't have a lot of time to do uh, anything except prep for class. But being a literature professor, that's often very enriching and enriching thing. So uh, not to sound highfalutin and elitist, but uh, Hamlet. So Shakespeare. Pretty substantive. I taught okay. it this morning. I got to teach him. I got to read the rest of it tonight uh, again, again, again. Um, and that's just uh, the understanding of the human heart. And especially w- when Hamlet talks to his mother and says to her, assume a virtue if you have one, if you don't have one. And he talks about habit and the power of habit. And as a Christian, very powerful idea that that habits both are are dangerous. They can become a devil. That when we get bad habits, they distort our hearts more and more. But when we choose to, he says, abstain. He says, abstain from my uncle's bed. And and the next time you have to choose to abstain, it'll be a little bit easier. Uh, so just Shakespeare just understood the human heart, the nature of how habits shape our rhythms and our hearts, our desires. Really fascinating. Uh, I've been watching, rewatching Doctor Who with my kids. Uh, so nice. they haven't seen it before. So I'm getting to watch that. Are you watching through the whole thing? Uh, not, I mean, what do you mean? Like the reboot whole thing. Oh, okay. So we're starting with, uh, what's his name? And uh, who's got the one season, that right? You know what I mean? Who I yeah, my, like? my wife, my wife enjoys that a lot, but I haven't seen it. At all. No, I think uh, the one episode she was like, "You really need to watch this." I slept through it, and she she won't let me forget it. Harsh. <laughs> I'm a big genre nerd, but that is not one I've really gone deep on. I've seen maybe a couple dozen episodes, like maybe a dozen episodes here or there, but that's not really something I've gone deep on. It's, it's got a camp vibe that, like, you either love it and you're like, it looks "Okay, fun. this People is campy," and I love it. Yeah, or you don't. So. That's fun. It's great getting to introduce fun things to your kids. And uh, I've been listening to Yolo Tango. That's today. That's what I was listening to for music. Um, so there you go. Nice. 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 So we will uh, obviously put links for the book in the show notes there. Is there anything else that you want people to check out? Where can people find you um, on the internets? OAllenNoble.com. Twitter, I think, the Allen Noble, if you want to do that. 
<laughs> Perfect. If you follow Alan, if you want to, if you, if you want, want to, to I'm at, you know, at your own risk is what I'm saying. Do you want to jump into the Twitter sphere? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, Alan, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. There's, there's so many different angles and roads. I say this, I feel like a lot, but especially when we have really great conversations with really thoughtful people, putting the thoughtful and the biblical thoughtful in human tonight. Um, mm-hmm. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, you know, maybe some of those things will be clarified when you finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> no! No! <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's a busy time in your life. You're already tired. I, I get do, it. I, get, I, get I it. do admire your uh you're just um, just boldness of the, the book selling online. Like you it's should good. be proud of the book. Like authors are like, Oh, well, if you want to, you're like, no, you should buy my book, buy my book. <laughs> I work I love hard it. on this. I, I, yeah. Uh, and it's not so much that uh, I think it's the jokey well, I seriousness. Mean, I really do love just, no, you should buy it. <laughs> just buy it. I, maybe I'm getting that from show a little bit, right? Like you should rank my album. Number one. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. What, that's what he's saying, you know. And yeah. but it works. He's he can make it work. Um, I try to be a little more ironic because it's absurd. It's weird being like, mm. and and when people are too serious, when somebody's like, I really am prophetic, and you need to hear my wisdom, <laughs> you're, you're like, just kind of mm. like, really? Cool. I didn't yeah, look in the I, mirror. I think I don't want to read your book more. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, oh man, that no, laugh at good. it. That's good. Appreciate it. Well, thank you guys for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. We appreciate you. Definitely come on back. Yeah, man. All right. I'll do it. Friends, that was Alan Noble. Thoughtful dude. What a great conversation. Um, I feel Mm -hmm. like I say that all the time with our guests that come on, but... It was um, really good. Yeah. Like I said uh, to him, like just putting the thoughtful in biblical, thoughtful and human here today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And get the book, guys. Like it's... It is not going to be the the easiest or the most enjoyable book you've ever read, but it's very challenging and very good. I feel like this would be an excellent book to either do a um, an in person or a digital book club on because his mm. his ideas are very deep. They're really worth thinking and talking about. Um, I'm sure we're going to talk here in a second. Go to the website, talk about it on thesubstancepod.com. Thesubstancepod.com. Right, Vince? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Get on to it. Get in the conversation there. Maybe we can wrangle Alan into the comments and uh, maybe answer some more of your questions there. But it's it's a really good book. Um, very much worth talking about, worth engaging in. Buy it. Um, buy it. Talk about it. Or go to Hoopla. It's it's free there. Hoopla, sponsor the substance. That'd be great, too. <laughs> um, and Libraries. if you guys... So um, I think this is going to be released uh, on the 14th, I think. So that's you got about a month and a half left for our 21 and 21 campaign. If you guys like this high-quality content that we're uh, trying to put out here at The Substance, we, uh, we'd love you to consider joining at 5 or $10 a month. If that's something you're able and interested in doing, um, we, we really love doing this. We're not going to stop doing it because... We don't have a thousand supporters, but every time we get another one, it just kind of helps us. That's, that's why we got the website because of you guys. So um, if that's something you're interested or able to do, you can do that at the anchor link in the show notes. Or if monthly support is just not something you're interested in doing at this time, you can give us uh, a tip of any amount uh, at our cash app at dollar sign the substance pod. So if you've listened to 
I don't know, you've been listening for a few months and you're like, I don't really want to join monthly, but hey, I'll, I'll throw them 20, 20 bucks, something like that. That's always cool when uh, that sure. happens. So you can do that on Cash App. And we genuinely uh, appreciate you guys. Everyone who uh, sends us something is uh, it's very encouraging. Hey, listener, we have a website. Hey, you should go visit it. Substancepod.com. Thesubstancepod.com. There. You will be able to, one, follow our socials in the upper right corner of the screen. Our Facebook, Twitter, and our Instagram is there located for you to follow us. You'll want to follow us for our giveaways, for our guests. When we have guests, sometimes even in this particular situation, we uh, we reached out to our followers and asked, hey, we're going to have this guest on. What questions would you like to ask them? Um, you won't be able to do that. If you don't either visit our socials or when you're listening to the episode for um, questions that you might want to engage in with the author or the guest, if they're on our website as well, um, you can do that in the comment section on the episode. So just click on the episodes, click on the one that you're listening to, and there's a comment section right under. Uh, Put your questions there, put your comments there, and we'd love to engage with you on the socials and on thesubstance.com. For all our fans out there, we know there is so many listeners of The Substance who are thoughtful people who care about the human experience. And so you hear episodes like these, you've got thoughts, you've got reactions. Um, Share those with us at thesubstancepod at gmail.com, our email address. Or you can call us, leave us a voice message with your testimonials, ideas, thoughts, reactions at 913-703-3883. Give us a ring. Call us. We miss you. And <laughs> we're looking forward to hearing from we you. Loves you. And <laughs> you are our friends. <laughs> the listeners is our friends. <laughs> if you understood that reference, let us yeah. know on the substancepod.com. <laughs> All right. And and then we'll see you next time. On substance. And it's very dark, and a lot of readers come out of that. You've got an earthquake. You might be being robbed right now. I don't know what just that was. Three year old. <laughs> just, just a three-year-old. Just a three-year-old. Do you have a bat nearby, just in case? <laughs> Chase, oh. I need to send him to bed. Season That's right. Uh, Okay, so I have one one bonus question. So sometimes when guests are very thought provoking to me, I I ask a bonus question off air that just is just for me and and the guys because <laughs> I'm curious. All right, all right. So so it starts off too with you. Have you heard of or like read anything from like John Rawls? Familiar with his theory I of justice? Am, I have. I am familiarish. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's that's probably good enough. I'm probably not any more than familiarish myself.
like and i think that so thinking about justice like i feel like a lot of what we talked about too talked about like a just society and what what would that look like what would that mean obviously really right. we were poking holes in in the the idea that our society is just right but i mean that all goes back to the social justice question and like what is the christian's role in social justice yeah so the question would be what is a christian's responsibility to pursue a just ordering of society. Oh yeah. So so think think about what I was describing earlier about uh, uh, when we talked about that retreat or revolution. And so I said we don't have the option of opting out. Where we see injustice and where we have a sphere of influence, where we have the ability to act, I believe that we have the responsibility to act. And that means that even if we don't think that it's going to radically change things. Like even if as it, this is one of the differences that we have as Christians, like you might think, well, people have tried this before and the institution never changes and they keep doing the same thing. Uh, I don't think we get to cop out like that as Christians. I think we have to say, well, all right, but this instance is unjust. I have a voice in this situation, so I'm going to act on it. Um, so I, I do think that as Christians, uh, we have that responsibility it's hard where it gets difficult is that figuring out what our sphere of action is, is mm-hmm. diff- it, it is hard in the internet world. Cause like I can always tweet about something, mm. but sure. is that really meaningfully a sphere of action or, or, or influence? Well, it kind of depends on who you are for some people. Like it's just virtue signaling for other mm-hmm. people. Like you have people following. So I have a lot of students who follow me. So if I say something about uh, on a social justice issue, that signals to them, hey, I can be a Christian and care about the, the conversation about poverty or race in America. And, and that like, has that's value. Not... That has real value. Right. So, but for other people, that's not true. So my wife has talked to me before and said, like, I feel like if I post about this kind of stuff, I'm just signaling to my friends that I'm, I'm hip. And I'm like, well, that, you know, they don't feel like you have the obligation to because you know, you, that might not be where you're at and that's fine. Yeah. Sure. It's almost like an organizing principle, like, like the difference between the two in, in the one case you're in a sphere of influence, you're organizing people to care about a, a certain issue in a, in an informal way on Twitter, but yeah. like, you know, for somebody else, it's just talk. Right. And, and yeah, I, I think about that. I think about that. I think about the civil rights movement and like, obviously king's idea of civil disobedience and mm-hmm. how does that all fit in and and because I, I the sphere of influence thing is is i i feel like some a, a lot of christian leaders use that as a as a way to duck out of responsibility mm, you know hardcore. And that's, that's why we've I, experienced that a whole yeah, lot so mm-hmm. so when i hear that language i'm kind of like i uh, i i hear it and, and receive it i understand what you mean by it i don't take any ill intent by it at all um, but I, I also, true think, to a degree I also too, think but... about like, yeah, I, I, and yeah, I agree with it. Like, I'm not, I, I know what you mean. It's not like you have to solve all the world's problems because you're not Messiah, you know, you're right. not Jesus. But, um, but I also wonder, cause it's so easy for us to build a sphere of influence on purpose that is yeah. narrow. Ooh. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's used as, it's almost like a soft retreat. And because so rather than like hardcore, I'm out of here, uh-huh. it's more of just like, you know, just your own sphere, people in your area, and you right. just do that. And yeah. it's like, yeah, nobody in my area needs help. Yeah. Nobody in my area is experiencing anything. Nobody in my area yeah. needs needs anything that I might be passionate yeah. about. So you've affected <laughs> your sphere and you're yeah. good. And yeah. so it's it's almost like a soft way to still yeah. retreat rather than yep. not having a revolution and trying to change the whole world. Yeah. But 
not being complacent, it just kind of yeah. gives you a, a little exit door to say, but if you want to get out of right. it, go go this way. Well, and because society yeah. is disordered, that happens naturally. Like mm-hmm. that that actually is the default. Yeah. Um and, and in fact, unless unless mm. you take active steps against it, you you will always like I, I feel like you do end yeah. up in a sphere where the status quo of whatever you know society is 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 kind of where you're at so anyway no i know that's all bonus that's just that's a good word no that's a good (laughs) word yeah yeah you know in writing this book there were times where i was like alan you just need to be more radical like you need to go all the way (laughs) and so like uh, you know part of me is like you could write a section on 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 living in community and you know i don't want to go like benedict option but 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 also (laughs) Thinking intentionally about community, right? Which is what what you're saying, Trevor. Like, okay, I need to. Am I am I choosing to live in a gated community, whether it's literally gated or not? Right? Am I choosing mm-hmm. to go to a church yes. that's that's you know upper middle class white, right? And so I'm, I'm living in a segregated this. city and ignoring the historic reality of the segregation and just going, I only know yeah. white people who are rich. Exactly. And what can I do? And if you are, like, what is that? What's the moral? meaning of that thing you know because mm. somebody you know somebody's some christian's gonna live in a gated community but what's the what's the moral implication yeah. of that what so, obligations arise out of that situation my instinct is to say i bet if you took these ideas seriously you would recognize that your neighbors are sick and and they need a lot of conviction and help and support it's just gonna look it's gonna look different yeah. It's going to look different, mm. and and you're yeah. probably going to have to work harder because they're probably going to. It's going to be easier for them to be like, "No, I'm good. I'm good. Everything's great." You see the Escalade I have? I don't know. Do people drive Escalades anymore? Whatever. You know this nice <laughs> car I have. When I was a teenager, with the spinners. That's right. That's it. I guess that's stuck in my head. That's what I'm thinking. Like, what was... if you're walking, you're driving a huge Escalade with spinners. That's it. That's what. If you're in like Georgia or Tennessee, maybe. 